Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello everyone, I'm Ani Abadisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonders of cosmic co-creation. Hello, martini heads, and a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo. In today's Talk is Cheap, Fauci's a Creep, The Truth is Bleeped, People Have Less Brains Than Domestic Sheep, Convoluted, Polluted, Integrity Diluted, Sad Little World. As always, we make every effort to do this with as much grace and empathy as can be mustered on any given day. We are not always successful, I'll admit to that, but we are honour bound to give it our best shot. And on this show, The Metaphysical Martini Show, we do love shots. Yes, we do. In fact, I'm going to have one right now. Excuse me. Oh, God, that is lovely. That is <clears throat> Oh, when I have a cocktail, my inner London always comes out. Okay, back to the show. Our rally cry is awaken, oh my people. Do not follow the path of the sheeple and do not give our God cause to weeple. On this show, we don't do politically correct because we do not wish to erode our intellect. We believe in common sense, common courtesy and common decency. We are not woke, we will never get poked, and we don't wear a face cloak. You see, here at Cocktail Central, we value critical thinking, accurate plinking, and if we stand together, I believe we can stop America from sinking. Sinking into that dark abyss of new world order, into that pasteurized, sanitized, homogenized, dehumanized nightmare the globalists are pushing for. Here at Cocktail Central, we push back. Uh, that's us pushing back because the light will always trump the dark because the light is the spark of cosmic creation, while the dark is a massive error in perception. We must strive to be right minded, my darlings. We must strive to live in cosmic alignment, enjoying all the wonders of our planet, but not get trapped in its material confinement. Let the spirit inhabit the human, lest the human loses its way. And by golly, looking around me today, I would say the way has been well and truly lost. Peeps, if your ideals resonate with ours, and let me be clear on this one thing, because I do get letters about it. You can be teetotal and still be a martini head. If your ideas resonate with ours and you would like to meet like-minded people, why not join us for a casual get-together at our brand new club? It's the American Free Thinkers Pie and Prayer Group, and it's going to be held the very first meeting ever in Salem, Oregon on Tuesday, August the 3rd, in the outdoor seating area of the Willamette Valley Pie Factory, which is a wonderful place because, you see, they make pies, the best pies in the world. This group, this association, it's a social thing, but it's a non-partisan, non-denominational meeting because we all know we are way past politics and religion and well into the realm of good versus evil. If you want to know more about the vibe of this budding movement, 
which I'm sure will take over the world. Just listen to a few of my podcasts and all will be revealed. All shall be made plain unto thee. Drop me a line. As I said, this is going to be our first meeting and we will not be serving martinis because seriously, people, 11 a.m., it's just far too early for that sort of thing, even for us. If you're interested in attending, RSVP to me, Arnie at ArnieAbedition.com, and please just don't turn up unannounced. It's not a very big place, and we may not be able to accommodate you all. All right, let's get on with the show. Let's start with quack questions, answers, and comments, because that is this show's primary purpose, to find out what percolates in the corridors of your minds. My darlings, if you would like to impress us with your astonishing mental capacity or simply have a bit of a rant, send your emails to me, Arnie at ArnieAbedician.com or by snail mail to Cosmic Arnie, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon 97070, USA. And please let us know if and how you wish to be identified or we will be forced to refer to you as omit personal details. All right, let's see what we have on offer today. Let's shake up the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity, shaky, 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 and recite from the long lost oracles of oblivion. All right, what shall I pick? What shall I pick? Um, let's pick this one. Our first missive du jour comes from Begonia Zabaleta. What a beautiful name. Begonia Zabaleta, who says, Dear Suburban Shaman, why is it that people would rather kill themselves than admit they misread or misinterpreted a situation, even in the face of overwhelming evidence? Is it stubborn pride? Is it that false ego you and other people talk about? Is it a mental health issue? Hmm, Begonia, good question. I think it's a sign of a fragile ego, and that, of course, goes hand in hand with a weak mind. So, Begonia, I think you're talking about people who won't admit to being wrong under any circumstances. And you're asking, what is it in their psychological makeup that makes it impossible for them to admit they were wrong, even when it's obvious to everyone else that they are wrong? And why does this happen? You know, why do they do this repetitively? Why will they never, ever admit they're wrong? That is, of course, a mental health issue. I believe that if you have fragile self-esteem and you are what I call feeble-minded, that your ego simply can't tolerate the notion that you could be wrong. It's, um, what do they call it, the psychologists? They call it having a weak psychological constitution. Because if you do have a weak psychological constitution, being wrong can absolutely shatter your personality. So you go into some sort of defense mechanism and you let that kick in. And what that defense mechanism does is distort reality. And distorting the reality removes the threat. And when the threat is removed, you feel so much better about yourself, even though you are having a mental health issue. So people with this condition, the ones that act out regularly, they think they're being strong and they're tough and they're courageous because they won't back down, even though it's obvious to the rest of us that they're quite the opposite of strong, tough and courageous. They believe they are standing their ground and that makes them strong. But the truth is, it's their psychological makeup that's compelling them to distort reality, to protect the fragile ego. Now, we all do this as kids, don't we? Because, well, we fear retaliation. Fearing retaliation is a genuine thing. Um, <clears throat> but growing up, you know, we do this, but it's part of the maturation process. Like Auntie Vera would say, who ate all the chocolate cookies? Annie? Me? Yes, you, Annie. It had to be you because you're the only one here. And my response to that when I'm six years old would be, Oh, no, it wasn't me. There are lots of squirrels in the garden. One of the squirrels must have snuck in and eaten all the chocolate chip cookies. And it's funny when you're six, but it's not so funny when you're 36, is it? I often 
have to warn parents not to be too demanding, too rigid with their children, not to have unreal expectations. You know, if you're pushed to achieve perfection, which is really not a thing, um, if you're pushed for that, if you're only rewarded for the 100% score, then you're conditioned, trained, indoctrinated, if you will, to feel unworthy and You'll feel incomplete if you achieve 95%. That is child abuse. Because 95%, 80%, 70%, those are damn fine scores. But that kind of child abuse, that stays with you. And it can put little cracks in your personality makeup that could lead to this kind of behavior. You know, those parents are teaching an otherwise worthy individual to grow up in a tight little box, bursting with insecurities. We also have to admit some people just enjoy chaos. Narcissists are one example. Um, it's all that disassociative stuff, isn't it? Chaos means warped reality, distortion of reality. And that is the inability to look within. No self-honesty, no guts. When we teach kids, for example, that the bullies are the weakest, most insecure, most frightened people in the playground, they lose their fear and it pisses the bullies off, but it takes their power away. Hmm. Thanks for the question, Begonia. Begonia. What a beautiful name. OK, I used to raise begonias in my garden back in England. Which is neither here nor there and of absolutely no interest to anyone. All right, let's pick another metaphysical missive. But first, let me have a sip of this most excellent cocktail. Oh, golly gee, Batman, that's delicious. Um, This one's a keeper. All right. All right. Next one. This is from Rico, who lives in Long Island. Long Island. I can't do the accent, but I love that accent. Anyway, Long Island, New York. And Rico says, I have a question about attachments. Can a healthy individual with no prior history of being a crazy Looney Tunes pick up an attachment from somewhere or someone and suddenly become completely Looney Tunes? And could it be that many people are actually okay, but become sick or crazy just because they walked into some type of weird spirit goo? I got to tell you right now, Arnie, all of New York is covered in weird spirit goo. <laughs> And he goes on to say some other things about the governor that I'm not going to quote on public radio. OK, um, Rico, attachments are real. Of course, attachments happen. We pick them up all the time, but mostly we come home, have a nice hot shower and a glass of wine and our mood elevates. Our vibration rises up and the attachments feel uncomfortable. So they either dissolve or they move on. If our energy anatomies are in good shape, we won't be troubled by them because, you know, the law of attraction, like attracts like. If you're in a stinky mood and you stay in a stinky mood and you exude stinkiness, then you will attract stinky mood attachments. And these attachments, they can be something as simple as thought forms. Most of them are. We've all walked into rooms and felt disturbing emotions, right? Emotional trash, it lingers. But it has a very low level of intelligence and it needs and wants friends to hang out with. That's all it wants. How many times have we said something like, ooh, I don't like going to Bob's house. I pick up all his angry negative vibes or, ooh, I don't like going to Jason and Mary's house. They always argue. And when we come home, we argue, too. So those attachments are common, but you can wash them off. Now, ghosts can also attach to people. And that type of attachment can be troublesome as people's behaviors, their habits. It can change if the ghost, because remember, a ghost is stuck on the earth plane and therefore still in its human personality. If that ghost becomes too fond of you, his habits, his behaviors can start to seep into your being. And I've dealt with cases where people's personalities have altered significantly as a result of such attachments. And I can tell you some crazy stories, um, but, you know, another time, perhaps. But here's the thing. P 
people who pick up these troublesome attachments, whether they're ghost attachments or whatever, right? The people are not at their peak. They're not having a good day. They're having an awfully bad day. Or they're going through some sort of depression. Or they're taking medication, prescribed or recreational. In some shape or form, they are compromised and not at full strength. That's when the attachments come in and take hold. Now, it's a purely vibrational issue. If you're vibrating to anger, you're going to attract anger. If you're vibrating to, oh, poor pitiful me, the world hates me, that's what you're going to attract. So, yes, attachments happen, but not to people in good health, not to people having a perfectly good day, people in good spirits, people feeling aligned and reasonably happy. So I urge everyone to guard their mental health, process your emotions, dissolve your emotional triggers and never play the victim. Be present, be vital, be aware. Above all, <clears throat> be functional, because that's really what we want, a functional life where we process our emotions, objective and functional. And that's the road to happiness. Now, I understand New York is having a very difficult time right now. Everybody's cooped up. Everybody's frustrated. Everybody's angry. And all of those redundant thought forms, they're causing a massive miasma all over New York. And people are greenhouse gassed with all of this. So you know what, Rico? Do a very simple exercise. <clears throat> Go to the map. Take a look at the boundaries of all of New York. Okay, whichever parts you want to include. If there are parts you don't like, don't include them. Put a giant golden circle around all of that and fill it with white light. And for one minute every day, focus on the phrase, we are as perfect as the moment of our creation. And just see New York blasted with white light and beautiful little rutilations of gold coming in from that outer golden circle and feel the breath in you and feel it cool and fresh and imagine that the city is breathing with you. Powerful, potent, simple. And thank you, Rico, for your question from Long Island. All right, let's take another question. And this is from Omit Personal Details, who asks, Ani, is there a danger of World War Three? <clears throat> Let me have a drink and see. <clears throat> well, you know, the whole world's bloody mad, isn't it? Of course, there's a danger of World War Three. There's a danger of just about anything. But, you know, here's the thing, darling. I think we are in the midst of it already. If you're asking if we will have a war with bombs and missiles, gosh, I hope not. I think World War Three is what the establishment calls the silent war. They don't have to cull the population with machinery and bombs and missiles because they've set it up so that we voluntarily commit suicide, which millions are doing, by the way, by allowing themselves to be injected with a grossly misrepresented substance for a condition that I promise you does not exist. It's just a variation of the flu. In addition to that, they've fed us GMO poison for quite a while now. And if we're honest, they've turned natural medicine into the medical chemical industrial complex. And the resulting diseases from all, you know, I mean, we're so sick from all the medicine that they're giving us. They've all got adverse reactions. And the result of that, it's made the globalist pharma overlords incredibly well. But the bottom line is this, sick though we are, dying though we are, we are simply not dying fast enough for them. They want to speed up that process. Now, it seems that our collective pushback against the establishment murdering cabal is having an effect because tens of thousands, perhaps even millions of injected people are seeing other people around them become extremely sick and in many cases plop drop dead 
So they're refusing the second recommended dose and refusing any future boosters. And that's good. But it also means the establishment is now royally pissed off and has to come up with all sorts of lies and deceit to kill the people who have now decided they don't want to be killed. Better late than never, I suppose. And as we awaken and push back, and as the establishment pushes back harder, and then we push them, and then they push us, all bets are off as to how it will go down with a potential World War Three morphing into something bigger than just the intellectual war. Will there be a fully blown World War Three? I have to say, I do not think so. Will there be almighty rioting and righteous indignation pouring into the streets in a town near you? You bet your sweet bippy there will. Let me say this, because it's my show and I can say anything I want. It has taken decades for the bad guys to dumb down the general population. Decades. It's that slow boiling frog analogy with the media advertising in particular being the fire underneath the frog. We are the frog. It seems as though we went from land of the free, home of the brave to show me your papers overnight. But that's not true, is it? The signs were ignored. The critical thinkers were ridiculed as conspiracy theorists. 9-11 should have been a big wake-up call, but instead it was a successful dress rehearsal for the bad guys. So, hands up, be honest, how many people out there still think that Posicomitatus is a small town on the Adriatic? Come on, be honest, quite a few, I assure you. Do you remember, back to 9-11, do you remember how they pushed the let's get people microchipped agenda right after that? The oldest trick in the book. Trust your government. Your government will keep you safe. What a load of bollocks that is. Big government is big trouble. The more we move towards centralized control, the less control Joe the citizen will have until one day he finds he no longer has any control. And the government moves his limbs for him. Hey, that's what microchips are for, right? Thank you for your question, anonymous person. One thing I can tell you, whether we have a full-out World War Three or not, Creator has decreed that no more nuclear bombs can explode on planet Earth because it really messes up the energy anatomy, the aura, the chakras, and all of that. So I suppose whatever else can happen, we won't get, you know, those bombs. So that's something, isn't it? Hoorah for that. All right. What have we got? Let me shake up this little bowl here. Shaky, shaky. Let's take another. Let's go for it. Let's be brave. This one is from Maddie, who is in Appleton, Wisconsin. Ooh, that sounds idyllic. Maddie from Appleton, Wisconsin says, I have watched dozens of prepping videos and I am still confused. What exactly am I preparing for? There are so many variables. How will I know which one to prep for? We are a family of three in a small house. My husband and I are employed. We have regular income and we can take good care of our seven-year-old son, but we are not wealthy. We can't afford two or three bug out locations. We can't afford multiple bug out backpacks in the home, in the car and wherever else. We can't afford to dig underground holding areas for fuel or for dry goods, nor can we afford fancy generators. Arnie, help us. We are over-informed and under-motivated. Please, a few words of wisdom to help us start out right. I feel your pain, Maddie. And yes, it can all be quite overwhelming. And yes, we don't know exactly what is going to happen how it's going to happen, and when it's going to happen. So let's do as the Irish do and start from where we are and deal with what we do know. First off, I think if you can't afford something, put a line through it on your list and put it on your B or C list. Take it off your priority list. I can't afford to prepare multiple potential bug out shelters either. And even if I did, I might not be able to get to them. But Here's the thing. 
If you have a family member or a friend that you visit regularly, you know, every week or every other week, you might consider keeping a change of clothing, a small selection of hygiene products and some non-perishable food items, maybe some water, maybe three to seven days worth at that location. That won't break the bank and it's just a little safety net. When prepping, let's work with what we can afford. So forget the bug out scenarios if that's not an option or if it overwhelms you. Focus instead on your home, where you will shelter in place, but also at the same time, make sure your vehicle is well maintained and always gassed up. Shelter, food, water protection. Start by managing. Do this. Listen, imagine how your life would look if you could not leave the house for one month. Just start there. Do you have everything you need in the home to maintain quality of life for a full month? What you eat and drink every day and a means to cook it should the grid go down. A means to keep yourselves clean for a month. A way to dispose of your bodily waste if the toilet won't flush. Start with the basics, Maddie, and once you can say, yes, I can maintain quality of life for one month, then extend it to two months and then extend it to three months. Once you have three months, you have it down. So you can add a month at a time until you have a year's worth. Is that excessive? No. If this last couple of years has taught us anything, it's we have no idea where we're going to be hit with an emergency and what kind of emergency it's going to be. I think a year is jolly good. And also, if you don't need a year's worth, you can help your neighbors. And a lot of that stuff is going to be tradable as well. All right. Look, this administration, such as it is, the administration is a very polite word for it. They are hyperinflating themselves out of debt, which is an unbelievably bad idea um, fiscally. But that is what's going on. So here's how it's going to affect you and me. Food prices will skyrocket. And the more food you can buy now, the more cash you will have on hand for other things, such as a decent water filter, because that is a must have. Please remember throughout history, food and clean water have always been used as a weapon. And independence means freedom from the state because the state sucks. Now, you also mentioned a generator. Well, they're certainly useful, but something to consider is this. How much fuel can you have on hand safely at any given time? If you only have a couple of gallons and your local gas station runs dry, which it will in times of crisis, then your generator becomes a very expensive porch ornament. And if you do decide to get one, you don't need to get an expensive one. Because not every appliance in your home needs to be plugged in. You will prioritize. In my home, the priority is to plug in the blender so that we can have frozen margaritas in the summer, which is very good for morale in times of crisis. You have a seven-year-old. You might be more interested in keeping your refrigerator going, you know. Now, gasoline can canisters, they range from 15 to 150, the more expensive being the safest, but do the best you can. Holding large amounts of gasoline in cheap tins is not a good idea. But a good idea would be to keep as many of the good ones as you can afford on hand. Just keep one or two filled and store them safely if you can. Then don't fill the others until you feel that something big is about to go down. Just start there, Maddie. Start simple and build as you go. And personally, I would take food and water over gasoline for a generator any day. But it's possible if you plan carefully, you can do both. Just be sure you also have a propane barbecue for some, you know, with some refills for that. And as for protection, when we say protection, people immediately think of firearms. And we all know I'm very fond of firearms because I am a recreational plinker. But I also know, having trained with military and having a ridiculous amount of military amongst my clientele, that 90 percent of self-defense is deterrent. The very last thing you ever want to do is to take the life of another human being under any circumstances. 
But if you have to do that, then remember, you are not shooting to kill. You are shooting so that you and your family can stay alive. I would definitely make sure that if you have firearms, you know how to use them. And that means clean, strip, deal with malfunctions, clear jams, all of that. But that's 10 percent of defense. You want to be looking at how safe your windows are, your doors are. You want to deter people from entering your home. That's what I mean by protection. And then, yes, definitely, for heaven's sake, this is America. Get yourself a shotgun. Maddie, thank you for your question. Simple. One step at a time. Don't be overwhelmed. But for heaven's sake, woman, get on with it. You know, um, things are going to happen any day now. Get out there and get some food. All right. Let's have another question. We had a lot of questions today. Hopefully we can get through most of them. This is from Omit Personal Details. People, you don't have to give your names, but, you know, you're allowed to own up to your problems, too, you know. Anyway, Omit says, Arnie, do you have advice I can give to someone who has made several attempts at suicide? How do you even help someone with such an obsession? Or is it an obsession or a cry for help? And this is a very long letter and it's deeply personal. I'm not going to read it, but it ends. Counseling has not helped and the family are on tenterhooks. This is never an easy one. Let me have a drinky. Oh, that went right up my nose. <clears throat> OK, um, Omit. I'm rather direct with my approach on this sort of thing, but that does not mean I'm not compassionate. OK. So bear with me. I would start by asking him. I'm pretty sure it's a him. Why the attempts failed. You said seven attempts at suicide. Seven failed attempts at suicide. I'm not being flippant and because I never would be with such a painful subject. I'm quite serious. Instead of asking this person why they want to die, because chances are they've been asked that before more than once in counseling. Ask them to explain to you in some detail why the attempts to kill themselves were unsuccessful. Did the gun jam? Did you go to the edge of the cliff and for whatever reason didn't jump? But what was that reason? Were you going to slit your wrists, but the knife wasn't sharp enough or what stopped you? I want to know why those attempts were unsuccessful. In most cases, this is the correct way to approach the subject if you, omit, are committed to genuinely helping this person and continue to help this person. Because that question, when asked properly with compassion and grace, cracks open a world of pain, woe and wailing. But multiple failed suicide attempts, that is not acceptable because everybody suffers. And the people around the person who's trying to commit suicide suffer more than the person who's trying to do it. So before you ask what would make this person's life worth living, ask him why he has so much trouble dying. Let's try a fresh approach. I'm not being callous. Dealing with suicidal people is part of my work. And yes, each case is individual and requires individualized assessment. But the bigger picture here, I'm asking him to make up his mind and to choose live well or die well, but don't suck at both. If you can get his attention with that, and I assure you it will elicit a reaction, you can start working towards a solution. Being in this loop of woe, attention seeking or victim mentality, uh, whatever the mental health issue is here, and it could be multiple things. It causes chaos in other people's lives, and that's just not healthy on any level. And quite frankly, it's acceptable. So good luck with that. Um, if you need any more advice with that, uh, you know, just let me know. Drop me a line. I'm very approachable. Okay, let's see. I've got a couple more questions here. Um, ah. I've had quite a few people send me pictures, and this happens from time to time, of orbs. You know, Arnie, what is this? And I got all these stills or sometimes even little moving videos from your telephones. 
um, from your cell phones of orbs. Well, you know, they're orbs. They could be dust bunnies. They could be various different types of energies. They could be fairies. They could be elementals. Um, they could be anything. It's unreasonable to assume that I'll be able to find out from a video clip what exactly something else, something is. Because an orb is a circular thing and circles are wonderful vehicles for travel. So I, you know, can't really help with that sort of thing. If I get a specific hit, that's one thing. I'll be able to say, oh, that's a fairy. That's an elemental. But on the whole, sending me pictures of orbs and going, what do you think this is? I'm going to say, I think it's an orb. Um, and then I have somebody who says to me here, Arnie, I am really upset with you for being so hard and so anti-transgender. Why am I getting so many letters about being anti-transgender and people telling me how dare you be anti-transgender because you are a gay woman and blah, 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 blah. I'm not anti-transgender. What I'm saying is if you have a penis, you are a man. If you have a vagina, you are a woman. If you have a penis and you want to live as a woman, knock yourself out, darling. And if you're a woman and you want to live as a man, knock yourself down. Who the heck am I to judge you? All right. My issue is not with that. My issue is with the sexualization of children. I don't want children in school being exposed to any kind of sex at six or seven years old, whether it's heterosexual sex or lesbian sex or male on male, man on man, ick sex. You know, this is my issue. We don't need to be talking about sex at a young age. This is part of New World Order. This is part of the pedophile agenda to normalize everything as okay. <clears throat> the other thing I do have an issue with is if you are a biological male, but you are now identify as a female, no, I don't want you on my daughter's track team. Your biological inventory should be the one that dictates what team you play for. Stop writing me these silly letters, people, and listen Listen to what it is that I am saying. All right, rant over. Let me have a drinky poo because I feel I deserve it. Hmm. All right, are we done with questions? Um, I think we are. All right. <clears throat> what is it time for now? <gasps> it's time for Tarot A Go Go. A little what the heck with your favorite tarot deck. And today's card is the Five of Cups. All right, where is my tarot deck? Oh, here it is. Okay, let's take a look at this bad boy and see what wisdom emanates from it. I'm using the Robin Wood deck, by the way. It's a pretty little deck and uh, quite traditional in its symbology um, or symbolism, whatever the word is. At first glance, it does look a bit sad, doesn't it? There's a figure wrapped in a cloak, head bowed, looking at three overturned cups, and there's red wine pouring out of them. Gosh, what a waste. Behind the figure to the left are two upright cups, and all of these cups are golden chalices with jeweled rims, the cups that hold our emotions as well as our wine and our water. I always look at the background of a of a card. The background here is a pleasant pastoral scene. Gentle rolling hills with some cliffs off in the distance. There's a slightly grey cloudy sky but no rain and environmentally nothing really intimidating here. The overall feel of this card is loss, isn't it? Uh, disappointment. Regret. Perhaps mourning even, but definitely some sort of misfortune. Is this person brooding under that cloak? And if so, why? Have they experienced a betrayal? Has a relationship ended? 
has there been a great anticlimax? And are we having to make peace with recent events? Are we having trouble making peace with recent events? Are we having trouble moving on? I mean, three cups are upended, but we still have two upright cups. So perhaps this chap or chapess is working out how to salvage the remains of a situation. I would say what's done is done. Make peace and carry on. In some cases, this card could represent someone who's very bitter and resentful. And that could mean anything from a bout of pouting, uh, you know, because you're not getting your way, to the effects of full-blown abuse and everything in between. It's a mournful card. Mm. I'm not too happy with it, really, because I'm in a very good mood right now. Let's reverse it and see what happens. Okay, let's reverse it. Mm. Ah, I feel better. <laughs> okay. I feel like I'm on the other side of the pain, that the pain, it could be ending now. I have renewed hope. A few words on these reverse cards, because they give people so much grief, you know, how to interpret them. Now, this card reverse could also mean that you just must learn to come to terms with your unpleasant situation and man up and deal with it. And that could be a bereavement, a relationship issue, an old misunderstanding, that sort of thing. But in the positive mode, it means light at the end of the tunnel. Keep moving forward. You will recover from this. I'm getting a feeling that um, this card could also mean you are moving on in life. And as you move on in life, Things from your past, perhaps actual people from your past are going to come into your life and you're going to make peace with any misunderstandings that you had. So there we are with the five of cups. Chin up, keep calm, put the kettle on and carry on. Now, if you would like to learn more about tarot, visit my website and drop me a line because it's so much more than you will meet a tall, dark, handsome stranger. It's so much more than just a tool for divination because your journey with tarot, it opens a mind to the wonders of creative visualization. And that is an essential component of cosmic co-creation. Tarot is a wonderful journey of self-discovery. And I offer tarot tuition for all levels, but honestly speaking, 80% of my budding tarotologists are beginners who don't necessarily want to become professional readers, don't want to spend hundreds of dollars learning stuff they don't need. They just want the magical journey of self-discovery. And for those peeps, I offer a laid-back, casual, let's have some fun with this course of study, which is basically all the basics with tips and tools for development and I offer that for an incredible $250 for 10 60-minute sessions. How can anyone pass up such a deal? I must have been on the martinis when I came up with that. All right, tarot people. Um, what did I want to say? I made a little note of something and I forgot. Oh, yep. Uh, this last weekend, I was down at the Holistic Earth Metaphysical Bookstore in Roseburg, Oregon, uh, presenting my things that go bump in the night workshop. And I picked up a lovely little tarot deck from them. Um, it's called the Everyday Witch Tarot. And it's the artist is Deborah Blake, spelt Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Blake, B-L-A-K-E. You might want to look that up. It is charming, a little bit naive in terms of naive art. Um, but absolutely charming. Everyday Witch Tarot by Deborah Blake. Okay, my darlings, I think that's it for Tarot. A go, go for today. Let me have a sip of my excellent cocktail. Not too many sips left. This is that delicious. I should have made an extra large one. Mm. All right. Now we can move on to weird and wacky tidbits. Let's explore odd little snippets from centaurs to crickets. And here we go. 
So thanks, by the way, everyone. You know, you've started sending these to me. This weird and wacky segment has become very, very popular. I guess you were all pretty tired with the uh, cryptic mystic and philosophers and that sort of thing. So it's nice to have a little bit of fun over the summer for a change. All right. Popeye the Sailor Man. Anyone remember that? I used to love that cartoon. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Doot, doot. Well, it's based on a real life character. And this guy was called Frank Rocky Fiegel. He had one eye, a prominent chin, smoked a pipe, and he often got into fistfights. But did he eat spinach? We don't know. And what about his girlfriend, Olive Oil? We don't know. I'm going to look that up. But I looked up this guy's picture and he looks like Popeye the Sailor Man. It is incredible. So Popeye is real. From one famous character to another, you all know Alphonse Capone, the famous mobster. Yes, but did you know that he is the reason we have expiration dates on bottled milk? You didn't, did you? Nor did I. I'm told that his niece became extremely ill from drinking expired milk. So Capone lobbied aggressively, as mobsters do, for expiration dates on milk for the safety of pregnant women and children. And, and I assume other members of the social body. Well, thanks, Alphonse, because that was particularly good of you. He also ran a soup kitchen, by the way, and in my opinion, was the founder of the modern day food pantry. And if you dig a little, he did more for the poor people in his jurisdiction than any politician of the day. Earthworms. Did you know about earthworms? I know quite a bit about earthworms because I used to dig them up in the garden as a kid. Also, I went on a survival course a long time ago with a bunch of soldiers and we had to boil them. Not, not the soldiers. We had to boil the earthworms and eat them. I wouldn't say it's my first choice, but I did it and I survived. Um, but I bet you won't eat this one. There's an earthworm called the giant Gippsland earthworm found in the clay soil along the streams in Victoria, Australia. You know, Australia, the place where Dick Cheney keeps all his pets. And this earthworm can stretch to an impressive 9.8 feet in length. Oh, my God, people, that's a lot. Uh, this giant earthworm burrows through relatively firm soil up to five feet deep, using its muscular head to chew through the substrate substrata while ingesting fungi, bacteria, algae and other microbes. Yum. And they don't have teeth, which is good if you ever met one. But they do have a gizzard where small rocks that the worm has eaten Help grind up food. Now, that's scary. I have to say, Australia, uh, wow. I can only imagine the horror on the faces of the earliest Western immigrants as they came across all of that rich and diverse Australian biosphere has to offer. You know, it was a prison for Britain back in the day. You could be sent to Australia for stealing a loaf of bread. Wow. There's a joke. I'm not going to say it, you know, because people will call me a racist, which I'm not. But the joke is funny, but I'm still not going to say it. OK, moving on, <laughs> moving on from the giant, burrowing, terrifying Australian earthworm. Did you know that you can purchase a toilet seat that will tell you how much weight you have lost after having a bowel movement? Oh, my God, people. Let's all rush out and buy one. We could start a whole campaign. America poops. Ah, oh, now, what else did I want to talk about? I have a minor obsession with apples. I feel that they are a superfood, and I try to eat as many different varieties of apples as possible. So I was delighted to find out that there's a chap called Tom Brown, who's a retired engineer. And he saved 1,200 varieties of apple from extinction. Good for you, Tom. Respect. Apples are great to eat, but you can also make cider vinegar and cider, soft and hard, and apple brandy, which is wonderful. So these heritage apples, 
People, they are the apples of our grandparents and great-grandparents. We ate them as pioneers. We dried them. We fried them. We ate them fresh. We used them for uh, for holiday treats. We baked them. We made brandy, cider, vinegar. We gave them to livestock. And there is such diversity in their shapes, their colors, their sizes, their textures, their taste. Every early farm in America had an extensive orchard. It was considered essential. And the more land that we settled here in the early days, the more well-developed the orchards were. And the larger orchards, well, that was thought that that was the sign that civilization had really reached the American frontier. And these old-time apples, they were being forgotten about. And they were rapidly just, they were going to be lost forever. Trees were being cut down. The older people who remembered the apple names were passing away. And there was a remarkably narrow window still is to find and save these wonderful apples. That window is closing. So this chap, Tom Brown, he's from North Carolina. He became very interested in finding and saving these apples. He started that in 1999. And by golly, he saved so many varieties for future generations. So good for him. Did you know there are over 7,500 varieties of apples in the world today? And 2,500 of them are grown here in the USA. Years of eating those red delicious and golden delicious, I think it's dulled the palate. There are so many delicious varieties out there. If you have orchards near you, farm stands, go and seek out the lesser known varieties and you will be well rewarded. We live in America, land of apple pie, for heaven's sake. So get out there and experiment. I wish I had acreage because if I did, I would grow apples as many different varieties as I could. And of course, I would ferment them into apple cider and applejack brandy, one of my favorite drinks in the whole world. So hats off to Tom Brown of Clemens, North Carolina, NC. That is North Carolina for doing this for us. Hoorah, hoorah, hoorah. All right. What other weird and wacky little tidbits do we have? I was uh, staying with the food theme for now. Oh, yes. Apparently, we eat 1.2 billion pounds of potato chips every year. And uh, interesting, it was an accident. Creating the potato chips was an accident. 1853, George Crumb, a chef, was frustrated after a customer sent back his fried potatoes over and over again, complaining they were soggy and too thick. So... To get back at the customer, the chef sliced the next batch of potatoes as thinly as he could, really fried them up, covered them up in a ton of salt, and the customer loved them and spread the word. And, you know, all of a sudden, Chef Crumb had to open his own restaurant, Crumb's House. There we go. That was it. It was an accident. How fun. I love that. Food accents. In the UK, by the way, you can't... Uh, Back home, we call potato chips. We call them crisps. All right. What else do we have? There was another accident, um, another food accident. I, yeah, here it is. Okay. 1930s. There's a company in Wisconsin called the Flack Oil Company. They had a machine that crushed grains to make feed for livestock. And the corn kernels were used to reduce clogging in the machine. Somehow, the machine's heat made the corn kernels puffy as they fell from the machine, and that was waste. But Edward Wilson picked some of these puffy ribbons from the ground, added seasoning, and you know what they say, one machine's trash is another man's treasure. Now, more than a 100 companies produce different varieties of this kind of cheese puff. I still wouldn't touch it with a barge pole because it's not really food. But how interesting. He looked at that and thought, well, it's corn. It's puffy. Let me put some salt and pepper on it. And boom, it took off. 
All right, what else do I have here? Oh, yes. Peter the Great. Somebody sent this in to me. Peter the Great. Everyone needs a hobby. Yes. And when you are the emperor of Russia, Peter the Great, by the way, what was he? 1682, 1725. He was an amateur dentist. Oh, this isn't going to go well. This isn't going to go well for the citizens of Russia. He loved pulling other people's teeth so much that he also accidentally, haha, removed healthy ones in his zeal. And he had a collection of various molars and bicuspids yanked from the mouths of his unfortunate subjects. Um, and he has it only, he had his own little museum, which exists to this day called the Chamber of Curiosities. And he had a lot of teeth in there, but also pickled animals, body parts of humans and deformed fetuses. Mm, how very unpleasant. What other little food tidbits do I have? Ah, yes. George Plantagenet, the first Duke of Clarence. This chap, he plotted treason against his brother. Who was George Plantagenet's brother? I think it would be Edward IV. So Edward IV was pretty pissed off about that and ordered him to be executed, but gave him the choice of how he wanted to be executed. And he chose to be executed by drowning in a barrel of Madeira wine. Well, I'm not very fond of Madeira, but I can't think of worse ways to go. And let's do one more here. Uh, oh, I was having a conversation the other day with somebody about all these alternative milks, you know, coconut milk and almond milk. And, and I say, you know, soy milk, which is terrible stuff. I mean, show me a nipple on a soybean and I'll drink the milk. You know, I don't like these alternative milks. But still, we think of this almond milk as being a trendy little alternative milk that uh, the 21st century vegans brought in. But apparently during medieval times, almond milk was prepared and it was done so for very practical reasons. When the church declared a feast day, people couldn't eat meat or animal milk. So the cooks turned to almond or walnut milk as an alternative and they even made butter from it. They also found that it was very handy because it could be stored with no danger of degeneration unlike animal milk, which spoils very quickly. So almond milk, it's uh, not really a new fad, is it? It's something we've had from medieval times. Well, that is very, very exciting. I mean, that was fascinating, wasn't it? I'm fascinated, darlings, by all of that. Now, don't we have time for a very quick wizard gizzard? Yes, I think we do. Here we go. Here's an exercise that will elevate consciousness and help people relearn the value of employing one's critical thinking skills. It's called follow the money. And who benefits from this? You, me. Here's how we do it. The next time your government or any mega corporation tells you there is a crisis looming and you will die if you do not obey large sibling, or the government tells you the world is in crisis from global cooling, warming or whatever, but it can save you only if you pay more taxes, Take a deep breath and ask yourself, who stands to gain from this? Who will make money from this? If you do this exercise each and every time, the mouth of Sauron spews out its filth, lies and deceit. You will regain your right mind, develop a capacity for objectivity and tell the government to take a flying poke at a rolling donut. Woof, what a show. Where does the time go? My darlings, I think that's it for today. I have, I'm ashamed to say, finished my drink much earlier than I should have, but that always means the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed listening in as much as I enjoyed recording it because I had a blast. I always do. Today's real life cocktail is called a Basilico. One and a half ounces of lemon vodka, half an ounce of peach liqueur, quarter ounce apple liqueur, quarter ounce simple syrup, quarter ounce lime juice, and then you want a strawberry and five basil leaves. And here's how you make it. You just take a cocktail shaker, you muddle the strawberry and the basil leaves in the cocktail shaker, muddle, muddle, 
add the remaining ingredients and shake it, not stir it. Really shake it. Don't put ice. But when you shake it really good and hard, serve it in a glass filled with ice. Garnish it with a strawberry. And I must say, it's really rather yummy. In fact, it's so yummy, I could have several of these because I won't, of course, because remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink is all you need. I'm Arnie Avedisian. Oh, yes, I am. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again. May the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, the suburban shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.